Hello. Uh, my name is Douglas Young, and uh, I go to uh, Trinity University, and I am a student leader here at First Pres. And so, uh, yeah, this week we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark with a reading from chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Hear the word of our Lord. He went out again beside the sea, and the, uh, sorry, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard him, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. All flesh is grass and its beauty like the flower of the field. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for drawing us together in your presence one more time today. Every time we gather, it is a blessing from you. And every time we are, we are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, we know that we are upheld in prayer and in fellowship. But Lord, we also turn to your Holy Spirit who upholds us in your truth. And we thank you for your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your son, our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Bob Fuller. I'm the senior pastor here at First Presbyterian Church. I, I, I'm always excited to be in here with you all, and, and it's just a wonderful time to be with you again in this 1102 service. So I want to thank Douglas. Thank you for reading our scripture this morning. I love this passage from Mark's gospel because it always reminds me of something that happened, I don't know, about 10 years ago when we were traveling as a family. We were, we were in the airport getting ready to get on a plane and, my, uh, and, and the announcement came over the, uh, came over the PA that it was now time to start boarding the plane and that they would start with the first class passengers. And, and when that happened, people started to get up around us and my son Bo got up and started to walk toward the airplane. And Bo was about seven at the time. I said, I said oh, no, wait a minute, buddy. It, it's not time for us yet. And he said, well, why not? Those people are getting on the plane. And I said, well, yeah, bud, but those are the first class passengers. And he stopped for a second and he kind of sized them up and he said, well, they don't look first class to me. <laughs> This, this story that we read today reminds me of that because I, I think all of us have a tendency to be a little bit snobby at times, even, even as a seven-year-old. We all have that tendency. I mean, some people just in our minds don't approach what we would call first-class status, and that's a, that's, that can be a problem. 
Well, let me tell you a historical story about something like that. You all know that this year is our 175th year of ministry in San Antonio. And, and this is a, a wonderful year to celebrate those things that God has taught us and God has made us to be in the past. And today I want to tell you something about one of our former pastors, the Reverend John Witherspoon Neal. This is a picture of him on the screen. Reverend Neal was a pastor of this church from 1872 to 1891, and he had a daunting challenge ahead of him. The building, which was not at this location, but what, which was at another location, was still under construction at that time, and the money still had to be raised to finish that construction. The, the, the church was continuing to fulfill its mission in the city, but that ongoing fundraising and building process would go on through his entire ministry while he was here. But there was also another big challenge that would face Dr. Neal. Only five years after the last battles of the Civil War, this congregation was still wounded by post-war divisions. There were sympathies between those who had preferred the Union side and others who had preferred the Southern side. And this was, in many ways, a church divided along the gray and the blue lines. So he had not only to finish the building, he had to heal the heart of this congregation. But in addition to that, as if to add one more degree of difficulty, this church had suffered a deep rift after his predecessor, Reverend John Martin, was removed from this church for preaching liberal theology. Now what Reverend Martin called liberal theology or what he called rather the facts and philosophy of modern spiritualism, the elders of the church and Brazos Presbytery called heresy. And so he was removed from the pulpit of this church. And so there was this division, there was this rift, and there was a lot of internal work to do here in this church. A lot of healing had to take place, but there was still work that had to take place outside of the congregation as well. Because San Antonio was still a very rough place in 1872. Dr. Don Everett, who wrote the history of our church, wrote this, that San Antonio had long been known as a meeting place for the depraved male and the soiled dove. I wish we still spoke like that. The depraved male and the soiled dove. Upon coming to San Antonio, Reverend Neal made this observation. He wrote that drink is the curse of the city and gambling is as bad or worse. As long as gambling commands the city, so will drunkenness, crime, dishonesty, debauchery, and all of these things which are rampant here. You know, one might think after hearing words like that, that those reflect the heart of a man who was judgmental or who was self-righteous, or holier than thou. You would think that he was a, a Pharisee, contemptuous of the people. And this fire and brimstone Jeremiah, who just wanted to go around con condemning people and purging the city of its wickedness. And yet, history remembers John Witherspoon Neal in a different light. History remembers Neil not as a man who hated sinners, but as a man who loved sinners. John W. Neal became known as a person who gave comfort and time 
time and time again, resources time and time again to those men and women who were ostracized from society. One observer wrote that the labors of Mr. Neal have been greatly blessed in San Antonio and no minister is more loved. In addition to his own large and growing congregation, he has been the pastor of the poor, the depraved and the fallen. He buries their dead and visits their sick. Neil became well known for his outreach to San Antonio's most famous and most infamous. Both rich and poor, outlaws and respectable people alike. And when he died in 1872, excuse me, uh, not 1872, uh, 1891, the editor of the San Antonio Wright, Light wrote this as his obituary. Probably no man in the city was more universally loved and respected. His Christian ministry was not confined to his own denomination. He was a friend of the poor, the afflicted, and the needy. The gambler and the desperado have died outside the congregation of the Lord, and yet over the unrepentant dead, he was the man to perform the rites of Christian burial. The courtesan knew him for a friend, pitying but not dealing downcast from a height. A generous person, he moved among the poor and the lowly, and they knew him for a friend as well. A small spare man of quiet demeanor, always with a look of physical suffering in his face, and yet always bright and cheerful. He went about doing what his hands found to do. Now, even though Reverend Neal was well-loved by many, I'm sure that there were critics, not only within the city, but within this, his own church, who criticized him, who said things behind his back and said that he hung around with the wrong kind of people. Well, in our scripture passage for today, we see that Jesus was also criticized for hanging around the wrong kind of people. One of the earliest lessons that we learn is to recognize the differences in people. Differences in ethnicity, differences in economic status, differences in social status, differences in education and in religion. And you know what? It's also a lesson that we teach both accidentally and on purpose. And I remember growing up hearing grown-ups' parents talking about PLUs. PLU is shorthand for people like us. It's a generalization to describe someone of similar upbringing, similar education, similar social status, similar values, similar family life. And early on, it became clear that whenever possible, it was deemed desirable to be around people like us, to be accepted by PLUs, to, be, to fit in, in school, in career, in social context, to be thought of and found in the company of first-class people. But the story that we've read today is about a taboo committed by Jesus. It's about Jesus associating with people who we might say were not people like us, or so we would like to think. 
The driving theme of this story is presented in a question raised by the Pharisees and the scribes. Their question was this, how is it that he eats with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, here's Jesus, a popular teacher of the law, a rabbi caught in a taboo, spending time with tax collectors and the riffraff associated with them, courting the attention, seriously, of the wrong kind of people. And let's begin with Levi himself. Levi was a tax collector. And before we get into this story, I want to point out that in Mark's time, tax collectors were different from tax collectors now. They are not universally loved as they are now. (laughs) Back then, back then, they were not considered to be simply civil servants. They were not considered to be bureaucrats or simply honorable people. They were seen rather as enemies of the people. Nowadays, they are highly trained professional people. They do an unpopular job, but true, they do it with honor. But back then, the Romans employed local people to collect the taxes of the empire. Ruthless people, extortionists, cheats. They were like loan sharks or legal gangsters who abused their power. And these people would exhort sums over and above the required amount due and then they would keep the difference. And to ensure collections, they employed crews of thugs in case anyone gave them any trouble. It was a cruel system, and it made both victims and victimizers out of people. It made some people suffer, and it made others traitors. Tax collectors were seen as collaborators, as traitors to their own people. And if the story of Zacchaeus in the Gospel of Luke is any indication, tax collectors could become very wealthy indeed, just enhancing the resentment of the people. The Romans didn't care if they cheated their constituents as long as they got what was due to the empire. And yet, even though Levi's profession was awful, even though it was awful, it was still lawful, it was legal. As a Jew, it put Levi at odds with his countrymen, but it also put him out of sync with God. And I want us to consider today that this story is a story not just about criminals and and people outside of the bounds of the law. I want us to consider that this story is about Jesus's ministry to someone whose career, whose lifestyle, whose values have put him out of sync with God and with others. Doesn't have to be a criminal like a prostitute or a gambler. He could be a perfectly legitimate businessman in a white collar, blue collar, no collar profession. There are any number of things. What matters is, does his or her profession put him out of sync with God? Now, Levi was a Jew, but he wasn't particularly religious, certainly not when religion infringed on his work. Like so many people, Levi was unaware of his spiritual needs because his physical needs were met. Does that sound like anybody you know? Comfortable physically, but dead spiritually. I can imagine that he had developed pretty thick skin. Considering the unpopularity of tax collectors at the time, he knew that people didn't like him. Most people probably spoke to him with contempt or fear and called him a traitor or a thief behind his back. 
And then this man, Jesus, came along, just out of nowhere. He didn't call him traitor. He didn't call him thief. He just called him. Follow me, he said. Now, Levi was probably used to hearing people saying, you know, go jump off a bridge or go to heck. But he wasn't used to hearing people say, follow me. And so what did he do? Levi got up and he followed him. Probably as much of a surprise to him as to everyone else. But then that's all that Mark says about that. Immediately then, Mark takes us to the next scene. And listen to what he says. And as Levi reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, there are two things that I want you to note note here. First, when Levi started following Jesus, the first thing he wanted to do was to introduce Jesus to his friends. I mean, who do you think arranged this party? Levi did. He was so enthusiastic. He told all his friends, I want you to meet the man for whom I left my business. I want you to meet the person who changed my life because there's nothing better. What's fascinating is that rather than run away from his friends and family, Levi gave them to the Lord. Levi became a bridge. It's as if he said to the Lord, here's my friends list. For those of you who are a little older in the room, here's my Rolodex, if you remember what that is. Levi's first act of discipleship was to follow, and his second act of discipleship was to connect his friends to Jesus. Now, the next thing I want us to note is that Jesus went all over the countryside preaching. But in this case, it says here that he was reclining. I mean, there he was in Levi's house, hanging out with Levi and his friends. He wasn't rebuking them. He wasn't preaching at them. He was getting to know them. He was loving them. He was relating. He was showing them that he was really interested in who they were in hearing about their lives. It doesn't mean that he endorsed everything that they did, but it shows that he cared enough to be present with them. He didn't shun their company. And it makes me wonder, if Jesus thought it was important to be with people like that, why don't we? But his interactions with these people upset the religious people. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the implication is that a holy God and therefore a holy person would not have anything to do with people like that. I mean, here, Jesus, a popular teacher of the law, a rabbi, was courting the attention of these tax collectors, these people who worked with outsiders, these people who seemed to ignore the law of Moses, these hedonists, these sinners, these men of religion. Jesus' communion with these folks was scandalous. It wasn't consistent with the righteous indignation and scorn that good, upstanding citizens should show toward people like that. He should be hanging around first-class people. You know, 
According to the Pharisees, people like us. That's who we should be hanging around with. And when Jesus heard what they said, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. It's those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And as I was studying this passage, when I put all this together, the implications of this blew me away. Because when Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, he was saying, I did not come to call people who love God. I came to call people who hate God. I came to call people who resent God, who don't trust God, who have contempt for God, who want nothing to do with religion or faith because they don't believe it. They don't believe it's real. I came to call the people who believe that they can do it without God. And I came for people whose attitude about God has made them selfish and paranoid and fearful and racist and hateful and apathetic and hurtful toward other people. I came for people like that. Mark ends the story there. But even though Mark is finished with the story, this story isn't yet finished with us. Because I think that we make the same assumption that the Pharisees made. We assume that when Jesus refers to the sick, when he's talking about sinners, he's talking about other people, people like them. And we always seem to think that this story is always about someone else. But beloved, it's not. This is not a story about other people. Because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's us. All of us here. Just like these Pharisees, we look at those tax collectors and we look at those sinners. We look at other people with contempt and we say to ourselves, well, we may not be perfect, but at least we're not as bad as they are. And I'm sorry I keep pointing at you guys. <laughs> I just realized that I need to mix this up a little bit. But isn't that the way we live our lives? Who are we saved by? We're not saved by Jesus Christ, we're saved by that guy. Who is that guy? Well, as long as I'm not as bad as that guy, I'm okay. But Jesus didn't come to save that guy. He came to save you. He came to save me. Our failure is not to underestimate other people, but to overestimate ourselves as not as unworthy or broken as them. It's really a sin of Vanity over humility or pride over empathy. I mean, sure, we admit that we have problems, but people like us are not as bad or as sinful as people like that. But in so doing, we condemn ourselves because as soon as we begin to think that other people need Jesus and his righteousness and we do not, then we are in unrighteous denial. The Apostle John even says that we live in denial. If we say that we are without sin, 
then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't want to admit that we have any real problems, problems that we can't fix ourselves. We don't want to admit that we might be at fault or that we might need forgiveness or that we might need to forgive. We don't want to admit that our priorities, our goals, our values, our stuff distract us from God. I mean, no, we don't hate God, but we don't act like we need him either. Do we need a physician? You better believe it. Because our physical needs are met. But just because our physical needs are met, we tend to underestimate our spiritual need. It's an ironclad truth that we will never take grace seriously until we take sin seriously. As a matter of fact, Jesus took our sins so seriously that he died on the cross to save us from its consequence. Until we understand the gravity of sin in our lives, we will never take Jesus seriously and truly follow him. This story is a rebuke to anyone who thinks that Jesus came only for other people. No, here's the good news and the truth that we need to understand. Jesus did not come for other people. Jesus came for people like us. Jesus Christ came for sinners. And this story is a reminder that today's sinner is tomorrow's saint. That today's loser could be tomorrow's victor. That today's addict could be tomorrow's apostle. And that yesterday's tax collector could be tomorrow's disciple. You may not have heard of Levi before, or you don't think you have. Actually, you have. Because Jesus gave him a new, a new name. His name was Matthew. He wrote the first gospel in the New Testament. He was a friend, an eyewitness to the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus took this scorned, hated man from tax collector, from sinner, to disciple. You think he can't transform us like that? You think there is any boundary or depth that is too big for him? Absolutely not. If you think that you are one of those other people and that you're beyond his help, look. It was to them, it was to us that Jesus came because he did not come to save other people. He came to save you. He came to save me. He came to save people like us. This is not just for people back then. It's not just for other people you know who seem to deserve it. This is for you and this is for me. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And this statement is, a, is good news for anyone who ever felt that they were beyond hope or help. God did not send a destroyer. He sent a doctor. Jesus said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And he is the doctor and we are the patients. Even though Jesus loves us where he finds us, he loves us too much to leave us there. So Jesus 
can call anybody, even people like us, to be his disciples. In his commentary on this story, great theologian John Calvin wrote that Jesus chose Levi, Matthew, so that he might be an example of Christ's undeserved goodness and might show in his person that the calling of all of us depends not on the merits of our own righteousness, but on his pure kindness. Jesus called Levi, and he calls people like us to show the magnitude of his grace. He came to save people like us. Now, let's be like Levi and go and connect Jesus to other people like us. you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, you have called people like us to give over our lives and receive your great gift of love and salvation. Your son lived the life that we could never live and endured the death that we could never endure so that we could have the relationship with you that we were made to have. But Lord, sometimes we feel like that is beyond our reach or we think it's beyond the reach of others. Lord, lift the blinders of sin. Lift the blinders that separate us. Lift, the thing, lift away the things that distract us from you and your goodness and your glory. Help us to remember that this promise is not just for other people. It is for us too. We pray these things in the, na- in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite the members of our prayer team to come forward. And as they're making their way forward, I want you to think about something. I want you to ask yourself this question. Did Jesus come for people like them? For people like us? Did he come for everybody else? Or did he come for me? Did he come just for people back then? Or is he speaking to me right now? There's not a single person who is in this room by accident. Every single person who is here today is here for either one purpose or the other. One is to hear this and to know that Jesus is speaking directly to you, knowing that he, is, he came for people like us. If that's already something that you have claimed in your life, then your job for the next few minutes is to pray for those people who didn't know until today that the Son of God gave his life for them. But that's exactly what he did. He came for people like me. He came for people like you. Right here, right now, he is speaking specifically to you today. And if you feel that God is calling you 
follow him. I want you to just take this opportunity to say thank you and receive that gift that he is calling you to receive. Again, as these guys start to play, we're gonna have our, our prayer ministry team members up here and they would love to pray with you about that. They'd love to pray with you about needs that you have in your life. They'd love to pray with you about the burdens that you're carrying because the Bible says that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so at this time, remember that you're not here by accident. He has come for someone like you.